You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Genesis 7 verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all of the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for recording these events to us. Thank you, Father, for giving us this sacred record Uh, of this sacred history that took place. Father, we thank you that you have recorded in such a way that we have every detail that we need to be encouraged and to to grow in, in godliness. And Father, we look to you this morning that you would teach us afresh from your word, that you would speak to us, O Lord, that we would learn all that the Holy Spirit purposes for this passage. So Father, we look to you and we, we pray, Lord, to these ends in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. 
number of years ago when we were in the music business, every summer and winter we would go to these shows, they're called NAM shows, National Association of Musical Merchants. Some of you are shaking, you've heard of those. Boy, they were a lot of fun. I mean, lots of fun. Uh, it was there where the vendors and the manufacturers would, uh, you know, show the latest gizmo or the latest something, the latest this or the latest that. And it was on one of these, coming home from one of these Nashville shows, uh, Tammy and I, as we'd driven home from those, we'd always said, you know, one of these days we're going to stop off at the Corvette Museum. It's down there in Kentucky, and you'd see you would see the signs and advertisements for it when you were coming up the, the lane. And, and uh, one, one particular uh, summer day after the NAMM show, we stopped. It was really cool. It was a big dome building. You walked around. There's all these really rare Corvettes. And some of you know that actually uh, a few years ago, several of those cars were lost due to a sinkhole. You remember seeing that on the news? It was really painful to watch. I mean, because... Those cars are so rare and valuable that they had surveillance cameras on them. So the whole thing was on film. You can watch the, the floor basically give way and the cars go 30 feet down into the ground. Um, now, I understand that um, all of these cars have been restored at this point. They've been recovered and they've been restored. And my point really isn't to talk about Corvettes this morning. That's not... You know me better than that. But my point, what I'm leading up to here, is the, the work of recovery. Um, recovery is, is painful. I mean, I could have went to natural disasters and could have went into law, but our sermon is heavy enough. I thought we'd talk, start out talking about Corvettes, okay? Because the sermon's not, a, this is not an easy message that we come to this morning. It's a tough one. And it, it has to do with recovery, recovering that which is lost, recovering things that are lost. It's, it's a painful uh, endeavor. It's difficult, it's hard, it's painful, it takes effort, hard work. And again, this morning's message is not easy. It I mean, it concerns recovering something that's lost. And, and not only recovering it, but restoring it to its, its proper place. And that is also going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. And yes, it actually is going to be painful at times. It will, it will command a commitment if it's going to be undertaken. Uh, it's, going to, it's going to require effort and hard work. And what has been lost and what I want to talk about recovering actually is an important and crucial component of the gospel itself. I mean, it is imperative that we, that we learn this, that we identify this, that we recover this, and that we restore it to its proper place. And the part of the gospel that I'm referring to is the part that concerns judgment. It's the part that concerns judgment. I mean, our text speaks of an impending judgment. And if there's a doctrine that we recoil from, it's this one. It's this one. After all, I mean, there, there would be something wrong with us if we liked judgment, wouldn't there? Um, there there'd, be, there'd be a problem. And I have no doubt that this is the leading issue that's leading people all over the place to reject the Old Testament. We even have Christian leaders who are leading large so-called churches. It's sometimes hard to identify these assemblies as real churches. 
but they're 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 leading their people to to to, 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 to discard the Old Testament, uh, and and it's it's I, I, one of the issues is this issue of judgment. I mean, last week we looked at what I called a spine tingling message. If you look back to Genesis six and verse thirteen, and if you remember last week's message, the outline was really simple. You know, Noah heard from God. Noah believed what he heard. Noah acted on that belief, and he found salvation. That was the, that was, and it was a four-part, I'll have you to know, it wasn't a three-part sermon, it was actually four. Pretty cool, huh? We're allowed to make them four. You know, we, they don't always have to be three. Uh, Tammy was saying something to me earlier this week, how's the sermon coming along? I said, well, it's a three-piece sermon, but I don't think we're ever going to get past point number one. I'm not sure what that makes it. Maybe it's just a one-point sermon. I, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's just a one-point sermon, but whatever. All kidding aside, as you found verse 13 of Genesis 6. What did Noah hear? God tells Noah, verse 13, chapter 6, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. For all the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them as the earth. Uh, you know... I can't imagine hearing that. And I, I think I brought that up last week. Could you imagine hearing that message? Um, you'd be on your face if you heard that message. And I would say that today it's a doubly tough message. And why is it, why is it so hard for us to hear today? It's because the church at large has really ceased to preach about judgment in many quarters. I'm not saying every church has. They're, they're not, not every church has them. I'm, I'm painting with a, a, a wide brush here. But we have largely ceased to preach about the judgment. And because of this, when someone comes along and preaches judgment, it begins to sound like some kind of fanatic or some kind of overly dramatic or over-the-top uh, kind of person. And let me just say on the side, let me just put in parentheses here, we should never do anything or behave in such a way that would encourage people to come to that conclusion. I mean, I think a lot of us already have a little portrait in our minds here. Um, you know, we should never speak and act in a way that would support this. And let's not make an abrasive truth any more abrasive than it already is. I mean, this needs to be approached with wisdom for sure. It needs to be approached carefully. It needs to be approached with maturity. And of course, it needs to be approached with love, doesn't it? I mean, I've heard people preach judgment, and I've heard them do it in such a way where I don't know their hearts, but I had just kind of an inclination that they were enjoying it, um, that they were enjoying the condemnation of people. Um, that disqualifies you immediately from sharing the gospel. That's how you feel in your heart. You, you need the gospel. Um, you, you're really an object of evangelism, not an evangelist. Um, this is hard stuff. Back to my point here, the church has largely abandoned this doctrine. Now go even further to say that the church is responsible for this, we being the church. I mean, we believe that if we preach judgment, we'll push everyone away, don't we? So is that not what we believe? If we preach it, we'll, we'll push everyone away. I mean, I, I could put it another way. We believe that if we include judgment in our personal witness, we're going to push people away. Um, so we take a leaf out of Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Has anybody ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? Anybody know what that is? 
Thomas Jefferson, all the parts of Scripture he didn't like, he cut out. He just started cutting them out, you know. And I think it's in the Smithsonian Institute, I think. It's on display, the Jefferson Bible. Um, the parts of the Gospel we don't like, we cut out. We cut them out and we cut them out till it no longer even comes to mind when we share the Gospel. It's lost. It's, uh, it doesn't even, I, I'm not sure it comes to our minds as we share the Gospel. Again, I'm not speaking for every individual. I'm speaking in a, in a broad brush here. And I think the leading culprits are not the congregations themselves. The leading culprits are the preachers and leaders in the church. Um, I mean, if we're faithful here and we're preaching this faithfully, then congregations are hearing about this on a fairly regular basis. And this important truth does not leave the consciousness of the church like it has. Does that make sense? I've had people tell me that Jesus would never judge anyone. Tammy and I were, we were a function um, at our neighbor's house a number of years ago, and we're standing in line, you know, the food line, you know, to get to the table, and I struck a conversation with a woman who was there, and she was professing faith, and I was enjoying the conversation, and all at once she looked at me, and she goes, Jesus would never judge anyone. And... Um, really, I mean, I don't know if that was the time to get into a discussion with her, but she said it with such conviction that it really led me to believe that um, if I suggested otherwise, in her estimation, I would be actually communicating blasphemy. I mean, she said it with such conviction, and there's a lot of people that, that believe that way. I mean, if we were writing Genesis today, we'd have to do some editing. I mean, chapter 6, verse 13, I think we would get Jefferson's scissors or whatever he used, and I think we'd want to cut that out. But look at Genesis 7 and verse 4. I mean, we read it as a Scripture memory verse this morning. I mean, that would have to go. I mean, we can't tell the world that God would blot out from the face of the ground every living thing. We can't tell people that. We can't tell people that, so we reason. Don't be telling them that. Are you going to be suggesting that they ever read the Bible? I mean, one of these days they're going to read that. Um, but we think in our minds, and the fear that we have is if we tell them that, they'll reject, they'll reject God. And why do we believe that people will run away from the idea of judgment? Why do we believe that? And some of you are sitting here thinking, well, Rick, that's simple. Why do we believe people run away from the idea of judgment? It's because the people will run away from the idea of judgment. Why do we believe that? Because it's true. A lot of people will recoil and run away from that idea. Um, maybe, like, in our minds, we think, you know, back in the old days, you could speak about this, you know, because back in the old days, they, you know, they were okay with it. They, uh, uh, they, they were cool with it. They even liked it, you know. They liked that stuff. Uh, we might think that way. Uh, there is some truth that in previous generations, the idea of judgment was much more widely embraced, but they never liked it. I can give you an example from Acts 24. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. In Acts 24, the Apostle Paul is summoned before a high-ranking government official named Felix. And uh, Paul shares the gospel with Felix. Verse 25 tells us what Paul says. He, quote, reasoned about righteousness and self-control and, guess what? The coming judgment. The coming 
judgment. Um, the, the, the thing about this is that Paul doesn't hesitate to share this important truth with Felix. You know, Alex is not here this morning, but one thing, Alex is always so faithful. When we pray in the mornings before our service, he's always so faithful that he prays, you know, something like, Lord, I, or Father God, he says, Father God, I pray that Rick will hear his message. That Rick will hear his message. He's not saying that in a, he says that in a loving way, and I love that. Uh, that I will, that I will hear this message. And a couple of weeks ago, I got to tell you, it was, the Lord really spoke to me through one of my messages as I was preaching it, and it reverberated in my heart all week long. So I, I'm in, in this sense, I'm sitting here with you. Um, I'm sitting here with you. But I had an experience this week as I was studying Acts 24 and verse 25, and I got to say, for Paul to stand before this high-ranking government official, and mind you, Paul's in the dock here. He's in chains. For him to speak on the coming judgment before this high-ranking official is absolutely remarkable faithfulness on his part, isn't it? You know, in, in my work at the courthouse, I've had opportunities actually to, to speak with the sheriff and a number of deputies and other people who I won't even mention, but people who are in positions of authority. And there's a temptation when you get on the subject of the gospel to water it down. There's this temptation when you get on that subject to say, you know, let's go slow with this. Let's not, let's not get into too much nitty gritty here. Um, the Apostle Paul doesn't, he doesn't, I'm, I'm sure he faced those temptations, but in this particular case, his faithfulness is remarkable. Now, how does Felix react to Paul? Is it true that the guys of old like this stuff? Do you think Felix liked this? Do you think Felix thought it was cool? Verse 25, Felix was alarmed and said, go away. Go away. Now, some of you know the story, and you know what Felix really wants. He's, he summons Paul back and forth a couple of times. What's Felix really want? He wants money. He wants Paul to give him some money. He's hoping that Paul, like, throw him a few bucks on the side, maybe get him out. That's what's really on his... But the point, my point here is that Felix scrams. He scrams. He runs away. People have always run away from this. So you see this is nothing new. But we want, we're going to have to ask the question, why would Paul share this with him? If he, Paul shared this all over the place. If anyone knew how people reacted to this message, it was Paul. Because he, he was sharing the gospel constantly everywhere. Paul knew how people reacted to this. Why would Paul want to include this in his presentation if Felix was just going to scram? Why would he do it? Answer, because it's part of the gospel. That's why. And it's not only part of the gospel, it's a crucial part of the gospel. It's a crucial part of the gospel. And we're not sharing a complete gospel when we leave it out. We're not. We're, we're attempting to remove the offense of the gospel is what we're doing. And before we go any further, let's do some confessing here. I mean, confession is good for the soul. And I'll get us started. I mean, could it be that there's a greater fear in our hearts than the fear of running people off? Could it be that there's a greater fear in our hearts than someone running off or scramming? Could it be that what we're most afraid of is what people will think of us after we've shared this message. 
I am so sorry. I mean, I'm bringing up confession. Let me go first. I am so sorry to confess before you that I have froze from sharing these life-saving truths from people because I was too worried about what they would think of me. I'll go first. I have done it. And my confession should go something like this. Lord, I have loved myself so much more than I have loved others. That's my confession. Because that's what it is, isn't it? How else can we parse it? Here's a call for self-examination. I mean, do we love people? Do we love people? Do we love souls? Do we... Are we grieved over the lost condition of our neighbors? I mean, as you embark on ministry, you start out that way, don't you? I mean, you have this love for people, and you get out and you share, and you get out and you get busy, and you get beat up, and you get beat up, and you get beat up. And as a tendency, as time goes by, some of you have experienced this, your heart grows back into indifference, doesn't it? And it has this tendency to want to go back towards indifference. We must always, when we find ourselves headed in that direction, we need the presence of Christ. We need to get back into the communion with Christ. You remember, what made Noah so righteous? We covered this. What made him so righteous? He walked with God. That means he had communion. You know, if we go for a walk, if your sweetie says, can we go for a walk? And you go for a walk. Well, what are you doing? You're communing with one another as you walk. Noah walked with God. He had communion, and that was the source of his righteousness and the source of his that was the source of everything spiritual in his life. So are we grieved over the lost condition of our neighbors? Back to Genesis 7, the Lord has shared with Noah that a flood of destruction is coming. He's to build an ark, a massive vessel, because the sin, violence, corruption, and unbelief of mankind has grown to great lengths. And the Lord has said he's going to blot out every living thing from the earth. That's a tough message. I mean, I, I love animals. Uh, I shared with some of you uh, that I was on a porch the other day, knocking on the door, and just as I knocked on the door, uh, I startled a baby deer that was laying underneath a glider on the porch, and it walked right up to me like it was the family pet, like it was welcoming me home. And it was, you know, sniffing my pant legs and everything else you'd expect your, your dog to do. It was beautiful. It was this gorgeous little animal. Gorgeous little creature. So I feel the weight of Genesis 7. I mean, the complete destruction of all wildlife, save those who would be brought on the ark. This is tough, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, we, we want to recoil against the idea of judgment. And there were men, women, and children running around in Noah's day. Jesus tells us. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 38 and 39, He says, For as in those days... Before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Um, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. Well, there's two more verses. Maybe we, you see the Old Testament. A lot of people think all the judgments in the Old Testament. You start, you start reading the New Testament carefully, you're going to have your scissors busy and ready there too. You're going to be quite busy in the New Testament. And you're going to be busy with the teaching of Jesus. That Jesus would judge no one? They must have no idea what the Gospels say. So there's two more verses we need to get rid of. We need to rid ourselves of any notion of judgment, but we're so inconsistent with this. I mean, what happens as soon as one of us are violated? What do we want? Someone is violated. They want justice, right? 
Can you have justice without some kind of judgment? The answer is no. We want the Lord to look past all of this. We, but let's think about it for a minute. Let's, let's, let's tease this a little bit. If Jesus, will, is, if Jesus will never judge anyone, if God will never judge anyone, imagine what that would really be like. Um, the savage rape which led to the death of a young woman somewhere in the world someplace, probably over the last 12 hours. What would the Lord say about that? He's looking the other way. Indifference. Doesn't care. The money that's missing from some treasury somewhere, which, of course, that's occurred somewhere in the last 12 hours someplace, undoubtedly. What's the Lord say about that? That's okay. It's all right. Don't worry about it. The beating that a 72-year-old man receives from some local thugs. Hey, don't worry about it. It's cool. All's fine. Look the other way. Can we live with that? Can anyone live with that? I mean, even the thugs, you know, they can't live with that. Because what happens when the thugs get beat up? When someone, an old friend of mine used to tell me, there's a paddle for every rear. So when the thugs get beat up, what do the thugs want? They want revenge. What's revenge all about? There's been a judgment. And justice needs to prevail. They don't say, hey, don't worry about it, it's cool. Nobody does. This is what's going on in Noah's day. We need to understand, this is what's going on in Noah's day. It's absolute lawlessness that's taking place here. Uh, it's not going unnoticed by God. A few weeks ago, we saw that God looked upon the violence, wickedness, and corruption upon the earth. And look at Genesis 6 and verse 6. He's grieved by what he saw. The Lord was sorry that he'd made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. You know, it's a tricky passage. I, I explained it twice. Uh, I'll explain it a third time. Don't think that God has any regrets here, or that God's changing his mind here. That's not what's going on. What's going on here is God is making use of human emotion and language in order to convey a thought. What thought is being conveyed? He's disgusted. That's what's being communicated to us. God is disgusted with what he sees, and he is grieved. The Lord is grieved over the violence. When the Lord watches a gunman go into a school, restaurant, government building, or house of worship and open fire, he is grieved by what he sees. He's grieved by that. He'll never say, hey, don't worry about it. That would be one of the most awful things we could imagine. I mean, the Lord doesn't care about justice. If the Lord doesn't care about justice... If he's going to say, don't worry about it, then we're going to have an eternity of lawlessness. That's what we're in for. That hell could be defined that way, actually. At least you could be getting started pretty good with that definition. None of us would want that. But you know what I'm convinced that we really, really want? <laughs> I've thought about this for a long time. And, you want to, and I, I've surveyed my own heart on this one. So again, I'll go first. Okay? I'm convinced that what we really want, both inside the church and out, is what we really want is God to have a justice system that looks just like our own personal justice system. We want God's justice system to line up with our own personal justice system. 
So I want that, and she wants that, and he wants that, and he wants that, and the group in the back want that. So we all, that's what we all want. We want God's justice system to look like our own personal justice system. There is no way we want that. There's no way that we can live with that. In fact, we are insane to want that. That's absolute insanity that has engulfed us to think this way. Our judgment would be arbitrary. Our judgment would be subjective. Our judgment would be whimsical. It would be capricious. It would be unpredictable. It would be unstable. It would be just like what we see everywhere in the world. We're absolutely insane to want that. We don't think sin is a big deal. Let me put it another way. We don't think our personal sin is a big deal. But uh, the sin of that other guy, oh, that's a big deal, isn't it? Um, for our sins, we want mercy and grace, but for the other guy, we want justice. We're completely unqualified to establish a moral benchmark on which judgment should take place. We are completely unqualified to establish a moral benchmark upon which judgment should take place. One more time, we are completely unqualified. Completely. We have to have right and wrong revealed to us because we don't understand right and wrong left to ourselves. And furthermore, we have to be brought up to this standard by an outside source because it's a ladder we cannot climb on our own. We can't. But the good news, so you're hoping, okay, we're going to do a Jonathan Edwards and call it a day and just leave and have to wait till next week to get to some grace. <laughs> no. The good news and the second point that I had in my original three-point sermon is that the Lord provides a way to escape this judgment. He provides a way to escape. Starting in verse 1, the Lord gives a command. Chapter 7, verse 1, I invite you to follow with me there. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his maid, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his maid, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the of the ground. There's the way out. You get into the boat. Get into the boat. But you know, the problem is it's always seemed outlandish to everyone who's perishing. I mean, come on. You're telling me that the way to escape is to get into a 450-foot boat that's laying out in the middle of the woods somewhere, not even near water? You're telling me that the whole earth's going to flood? It's going to be something like 15 cubits above the highest mountain in the world? You want me to get in a boat with you and all those animals? That sounds outlandish. Noah, you've been working on this too long. How long has it been? Probably 120 years, I think, is our best guess. Noah worked on this. 120 years. Noah, you're crazy. You're a fanatic. You've lost your mind. You're over the top. This is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, but to those who are being saved, namely Noah, his wife, their three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives, it's no foolishness. 
It's the power of God unto salvation. Did they get in the boat? You better believe they got in the boat. They built the boat. Their lives were all about the boat. And they survived by God's grace. How is it for us today? It's so important for us to study. We can't get rid of this stuff. It's so important. It's so important for us to study these Old Testament stories because they graphically display what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. You can already make the connection, can't you? And what a picture it is. I mean, what a picture. God's holiness requires that he judges the world. He will judge the world. He's going to judge this world. He was going to do it. It could be this afternoon. He is going to do it. That's a given. He's required to save nobody. He is not required to save any of us, but in His mercy and His grace, He has chosen to do so. And He came in the person of Jesus Christ to be the true ark. Noah's ark is just a type of Christ. And it points to the true Christ. And just as Noah and his family were saved from the waters of judgment by getting in the ark, Christ saves all those who put their trust in Him from the fire of judgment. And He does this by taking that judgment in our place on the cross, doesn't He? It's no different today, for Paul says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. People treat the work of Christ on the cross the same way I would imagine they treated Noah and his boat. But God is merciful, and He will lead those who are His to seek His truth. So shall we exclude judgment from our witness? Shall we exclude it? I'm arguing that it's a crucial part of the gospel. We can't. If we do, if we, if, we, if we cut it out, we're not sharing a complete gospel. Do we know better than God? Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 famously reads, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The Lord understands that this doctrine does cause people to recoil. He understands that better than all of us. He understands that better than us. He understands that better than Paul. People are going to recoil from this. He knows that it's our tendency to do so, to run from the idea of judgment, and yet he shares it with us. Why? Why? Why does he share it with us? I mean, think about it. If he knows this about us, why would he put it, why would he write all this stuff down? Leave it out. It's just going to drive people away. He shares it with us because He's loving. He shares it with us because we're going to have to face it. Everyone in this room. And He shares it with us because it's the biggest problem we'll ever have. But here's the thing I'll say in closing. People might think we're nuts when we tell them about impending judgment. I've felt that before, and some of you have been faithful in this one. You know what I'm talking about. We might feel that way, but how do, we, how, how do we not know that this might actually be the conversation that the Lord will cause to reverberate in their heads and in their minds? Um, how do we not know that God may use this to eventually move them to begin seeking the truth? I mean, how do we know that God may bring them to understand? Maybe next month, maybe next year, maybe 10 years from now. These occasions have been rare, but I have had people come to me who I talked to many years ago. And they'll say to me, that thing you said to me, 
like I, I would remember that very thing that I said to them. That thing you said to me. And then they'll explain. Well, when they explain, I usually remember saying it. That's haunted me for a long time. I got mad when you said that to me. But I'm so thankful you said it. I'm so thankful you shared it. I've had those, they're rare, but I've had a couple of experiences like that. One person wouldn't speak to me for 18 months. It was the thing that got them thinking. It was the thing that started the wheels of turning. It was the very thing that God used to lead them to the, to the truth. They understood why they needed a Savior. They understood why they needed a boat. See, <laughs> if there's no judgment, then that boat doesn't make any sense because there's not going to be any rain. Well, there's not going to be any rain because God, we're going to see as we study, God's made a covenant about the rain. There's going to be fire. That's what's coming next. See, as soon as you say that, you sound like some kind of, oh, he's a fire and brimstone guy. It's what's coming. Last week I said something like, Somewhere along the line, someone suggested that we shouldn't preach like that anymore. And then I said something like, I think we should get back to it right away. So I decided this is about as right away as I could get. I better get back to it this Sunday. So I'm doing the best I can to get back to it. There's an impending judgment waiting. But the God who will carry out this impending judgment has sent his son to bear the judgment for all who will get in the boat, for all who will trust him. We get into the boat by trusting Jesus. And the only way we can escape that is by trusting Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for loving us so much that you have given us these stories that so graphically show us what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And it paints a picture that's not easily, we can't easily get it out of our heads once it's there. Father, give us the faithfulness to put these images into the minds and hearts of those around us who we love. And Father, let us never think that we have to be called to pulpit ministry to, to have these conversations with people who are around us. Help us, oh Father, to do this difficult work of saying a simple thing here and a simple thing there. Maybe it's just a simple saying, you know, one of these days we're going to have to answer for everything we've done. Father, help us. Help us, help us to find ways that match our personalities and are appropriate to the people that we're around. That we wouldn't add any fodder to being viewed as being out of our heads or out of our minds. But that we would very clearly communicate the, the truth that you are going to come back in judgment. So, Father, help us, we pray. Help us with these things. Help us to recover this crucial part of the gospel that's been lost. In Jesus' name, amen.